Ladies and gentlemen, as you board, please move all the way across your car to make room for everyone. From the rooftops of London, we now move towards the unknown dangers that lurk in the shadows of the big city. This is the underworld. The koala bear. But the koala is not a bear. <laughs> He's a marsupial. So, it is with great pleasure that I present... W... Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 562, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best vacation experience when you go to the Disney parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with the podcast, my live video broadcast every Wednesday night on Facebook, blog, videos, special events, audio tours, and more. And whether it's your first time visiting the parks or you've been hundreds of times, if you're planning a vacation or love the history, details, secrets, and stories, there's something here for you because each week I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Please go back, check out some of the old episodes for interviews, top tens, reviews, and more. And you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and find everything else over at www.radio.com. So this week, I am excited to share with you a conversation with another one of the true makers of magic, Dave Bossert. His story began at CalArts and led to his working at the Walt Disney Animation Studios on such films including The Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Oliver and Company, The Little Mermaid, Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Nightmare Before Christmas, Lion King, Pocahontas, you see where I'm going with this, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Hercules, as well as many others, before being elevated to visual effects supervisor on Fantasia 2000. He was also the associate producer on the Academy Award-nominated short, Destino. He went on to work on special projects for various Disney theme park attractions, and is the author of numerous books on Roy Disney, Ken Weber, and Oswald. And this week, Dave shares his personal journey and experiences during our conversation, as well as his thoughts on the current state of animation and what might be next. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about upcoming WW Radio events, our next WW Radio live broadcast, Meet of the Month, D23 Expo, your voicemails and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. The magic that we know and understand and love of Disney comes via remarkable storytelling and storytellers from artists, filmmakers, authors, producers, creative directors to animators 
and the very few people that can say they possess all of those roles and talents. And today, I have the pleasure to speak with somebody whose career has included all of those titles and more with the Disney Company, and I am excited to welcome Dave Bosser to the show. Dave, thank you so much for being here. Lou, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, always thrilled to, uh, uh, to jump on and talk with folks like you. Well, you have had um, such a fascinating and varied career with Disney, but I really want to start with your story. I'm a sucker for origin stories, right? So, um, and and do in part, I, I like sharing them on the show because I think they can serve as inspiration to somebody who might want to do something or be thinking about doing something similar to a career path as yours. So tell us about you know, little Dave Bossard from Long Island and where the interest in, in animation and filmmaking and storytelling began. Well, you know, I, I'd always, you know, growing up, I, I was always artistic. I was always drawing. I was, uh, I was doing some stop motion films when I was in junior high. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, I always felt like when I got into high school, I was going to go into some sort of art career. I didn't know what that was going to be right away. And by the time I graduated high school, I had uh, uh, enrolled after that, uh, the following September, uh, after graduating high school, I enrolled at State University of New York at Farmingdale on Long Island. So it was a state university. And I was taking an advertising art program, and I thought I would be going into advertising and work on Madison Avenue or something. And uh, while I was uh, in that program, I took a, a class called TV Graphics, and it was really the first time that I created a piece of animation. And I, I was able to move some of my artwork. Uh, and right around that time, somebody handed me, it was a friend that handed me an article that was in the New York Times about a school in California that was uh, training the next generation of animators. Uh, and uh, I sent my portfolio out there. And I always like to tell people today that, you know, you have it so easy today, people do, because you could set up a website and you put your portfolio up on a website and, and all of that. But this is pre-internet, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I had to bundle up a, a large black portfolio case and send it UPS out to a school called California Institute of the Arts, also known as CalArts. And um, and I got accepted into the character animation program there, and uh, I got a Walt Disney scholarship to go there. And uh, you know, I packed up my Volkswagen Beetle and I drove cross country. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I arrived in California with like thirty five dollars in my pocket. You know, and uh, I mean, it's very I much your your own Walt Disney story, right? Your your one way ticket to California <laughs> with forty bucks yeah, in your pocket. You know, and, you know, and I got I got to I got to the school and uh, you know had, had terrific classmates, but a lot of those classmates were were super Disney fans, and they really you know all they talked about was wanting to work at Disney. And anytime somebody asked me what I was going to do, I said, "Oh, when I when I graduate, I'm going to go back to New York, and I'm going to do advertising, and I want to do commercials, and this and that." 
And when I graduated, I got offered a position to work on a couple early video games, uh, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. Oh my God, I love Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I wound up I, I wound up uh, with an entry level position uh, doing effects in betweening on those uh, two video games and. Which were revolutionary at the time. The, the Don yeah, video games were revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't realize that when you're working on it. You're just like, ah, this is really cool, you know? So I worked, I worked on those, I think, for eight or nine months. And the company that I was working for went out of business. And, you know, they went bankrupt. Uh, and, you know, I remember them having this staff meeting in the parking lot and the, and the principals of the company saying, well, you know, we've run out of money and we're, we're going bankrupt. <laughs> it was like we were out of a job that afternoon. But uh, another friend of mine said, hey, you know, uh, uh, why don't you bring your portfolio over to Disney? Uh, they're working on a picture and they need some help to get it finished. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I could go back to New York and try and get into advertising where I can stick around for another year and work on this picture. So I sent my portfolio over and I got hired into the effects department. And I was the last guy hired uh, into the effects department on the Black Cauldron. And this is early 1984. And um, I, uh, I just went in and I, I worked as much overtime as they would let me do and worked as hard as I could. And I saved as much money as possible because I figured last guy hired is going to be the first guy fired uh, when the picture was finished. And, you know, uh, that's part of the business. I mean, you know, the film industry is a very uh, transient business. You know, people go from project to project. Sometimes you're out of work for a month or two and then you get the next project. And I just thought, okay, well, I'm going to work as hard as I can, save as much money as I can, and then I'll go back to New York and I'll do commercials. And, uh, and so I, I did that on Black Cauldron. And by the way, uh, the person that hired me was Don Hahn. And, and Don's a very good friend of mine. I see him on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, he, he hired me and, uh, towards the end of that picture, people were starting to get their pink slips. they noticed that they were getting laid off and I was just still sitting in my office working away. And I saw people that had been with the company for five or six or eight years getting laid off. And, well, it was, uh, it was just to stop you for a second. It was a very interesting and difficult time i think in in not just in disney i think in the entire animation industry right a lot of work was was going overseas um so i mean the layoffs yeah, were happening I mean, you know there was there was a big strike in the 70s uh late 70s there was a big animation strike and a lot of the work did go overseas but from a feature animation standpoint uh disney really was the only game in town that was doing theatrical features, you know? I mean, there was the odd one that popped up here and there from, from uh, another company, but it was mostly Disney. And, and they were an anomaly because if you got in there, you could potentially work year round for long stretches of time. Uh, but I got in there and I, I worked my, I remember that the first week I worked, I it was a six day work week for me. Uh, and I, and I did a lot of overtime and I think I worked for like five months doing six days a week and then it went to seven days a week. And, uh, and so I, all I was doing was, you know, was driving to work in the morning, working a 10 or 12 hour day and then driving home and going to sleep, you know, and I really wasn't spending any money. So I was able to save up quite a bit. 
But anyway, I, you know, they're handing out pink slips. And finally, I went down to Don Hahn's office. He was the production manager. And I said, Don, I just want to get a sense of when, when you're going to lay me off just so I can plan ahead. And, and I was happy about it. I was sort of like, I wasn't bummed or anything. I had already resigned myself. To the <laughs> right. fact that I'm going to get laid off. And that's cool. And it was like, I think it was sort of like late spring that year. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think it was like late spring or mid mid to late spring of 85. And the film wasn't going to get released until the fall. But my portion of it was going to be finishing out. And I thought, well, I was living with a buddy from New York uh, out in Marina Del Rey. And I, you know, we were like a block from the beach. And I thought, wow, this would be great. I'll get laid off and I could spend the summer at the beach. And then I'll head back to New York and I'll work in commercials. And he looked at me and he says, oh, we're not going to lay you off. He goes, you've been working so hard. We want to keep you. And I just, I think I did like a Tex Avery take when my eyes popped out, my jaw hit the floor, you know? And, uh, but I, I thought, okay, well, they're going to keep me. So I wound up um, uh, finishing off effects and they did lay off, like they, they laid off 16 people out of the effects department. It was about two thirds of the department. There was 28 people. They laid off 16. There were 12 of us left. And, and then because they didn't really have a lot of work after I finished on black cauldron, the next picture wasn't quite ready. They asked if I would help ink and paint on black cauldron. And to this day, that was like the best education I ever got on the entire pipeline of animation. And, uh, and and troubleshooting and, and and you know just understanding what happens when you finish uh, animation, you finish drawings, and they they go through a series of departments before they make it to film. And so, just quickly touching on the time that you were you spent during the call, it made me think, and I love, and I have to go back and watch it again because I was a, a big fan of of Don Hahn's Waking Sleeping Beauty, which yeah. I have to imagine really sort of um, encapsulated the state of, of what was going on there. And if, if anybody listening has never seen it, it it's something um, definitely to, to go and watch to get a sense of, of what was happening over at the studio during that time. But so a, a lot of the work that you do, you said that was sort of your first dipping your toe or your pen in the ink and paint department, but you uh, were primarily an effects animator. Yeah. So I, I mean, ultimately after black cauldron, I went on to uh, the great mouse detective and they, and they promoted me up to animator. I was an effects animator on that picture. And that's when I started doing effects animation. Um, and, uh, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going to work on the great mouse detective, which turned into, uh, well, it was called Basil at Baker street and it became the great mouse detective. Uh, but yeah, I think you, you, you mentioned this earlier, there was a lot of uh, uh, turmoil at the studio. Um, there was a financier from Wall Street that had built up a big block of stock and was trying to take over the company. Uh, Saul Steinberg was his name. And, and during that episode, the term green mail became sort of a, a coined term. Um, and he felt that the Disney company was worth more uh, in pieces than as a whole. So, you know, he, he wanted to take over the company and sell off the film library and sell off Disneyland and, you know, sell off other assets and, and, and you know, 
and and that didn't happen. Uh, uh, Roy Disney, who had resigned from the board, uh, uh, came back into the picture and and got the Bass Brothers of Texas, the billionaire Bass Brothers, to come in as white knights. They bought back the block of stock from Saul Steinberg, and he made a bundle on that. And and then during that period, they put in new management. So Ron Miller, who was Walt's son-in-law, was the CEO. He got pushed out, and they brought in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. And then in came Jeffrey Katzenberg and a lot of executives from other film companies uh, around Hollywood. And that was really sort of a pivotal point. I mean, that was all Roy Disney's doing, and uh, and he was able to... I mean, I think if you look at the Walt Disney Company today, mm-hmm. it was because of Roy E. Disney's actions back in 1983, 84, that, you know, we have this huge uh, enterprise today. Right. I think know? a lot of attention is given to Eisner and Wells in terms of, of what they did sort of being the front facing. But I agree with you in terms of, of the importance and the presence of, of Roy being there. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, Roy was the catalyst. Roy was the one who, who, you know, and I, and I was, you know, I, I worked with Roy quite a bit, you know, probably for almost 20 years when I was at the company and, and traveled with him. And he, he told me a lot of stories about that period. And I had asked a lot of questions as well when we were having dinners or, or on the plane traveling or something. And, uh, and I heard it firsthand from him. You know, and I, I, I really have a great respect for him because he was he was somebody who didn't want the limelight, uh, but he also valued the family business and wanted to make sure that the family business endured, mm. uh, and and did so in with integrity. You know, and I think he, over the years, in my my view became sort of the Jiminy Cricket of the Walt Disney Company when he was vice chairman. He was, he was sort of the guy that he wasn't looking at things so much as, is it going to make a ton of money for the company? He was looking at things as, is this the right thing for the company to do? You know, I mean, he's he's largely responsible for pushing and getting uh, Animal Kingdom uh, built down in Orlando. Uh, and and anytime I traveled with him to Orlando, we always went over to the Animal Kingdom, and you know we we'd get like a special van that <laughs> they drive us around the Savannah, you know that kind of thing. It was always kind of cool to travel with him. I have to say, yeah, as I say, hanging but, out with Roy Disney is probably not the worst thing, uh, not not the worst way to spend your day. But let's just quickly, you know, explore this this tangent a little bit in terms of of Roy himself. Um, you sort of hinted to it, you know, as you as you spent time with Roy and as Roy, um, um, you know, was getting to to his final days before he passed in in late 2009. Did you get a sense from him in terms of his feelings about the 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 current status of the company and, and in terms of of where it was going to continue to head after he was gone? You know, I I think that, you know, overall, uh, I think he was generally pleased uh, that uh, the company was on a track. 
I think he was he was really thrilled with uh, what Bob Iger uh, was doing. Uh, obviously, you know, he had a tussle. Uh, the relationship with Michael uh, soured uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, and Michael uh, essentially was was pushed out and and Bob took over. And and I think, you know, he was he was really pleased with what Bob was doing. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the cool thing about Bob Iger is that Bob is a fan of Disney. You know, Bob grew up watching the Mickey Mouse Club on television, you know, and, uh, and he's steeped himself in the legacy and the history of the company. You know, and he, he has to walk a, a, a tightrope of, you know, uh, shareholders and a multinational uh, corporation and, and making decisions. But he's also somebody that is allowing uh, uh, managers to run their, their businesses, you know. He, he's allowing Marvel to run its business. He's allowing Lucasfilm to run their business. And I think that's one of the big it's, it's sort of the genius of, yeah. of Iger's stewardship of the company is uh, he doesn't feel like he has to micromanage those areas, you know. Certainly, he's keeping a watchful eye and he's got his hand <laughs> on the wheel, you know. But from that standpoint, you know, I think he's done an amazing job. And I think, I think Roy was really pleased with the, the, the way the company was going. Yeah, I mean, even forgetting just from a financial perspective in terms on the returns of investment, I, I agree with you about Bob Iger. You almost get the sense that he too, you know, is, you know, I think his legacy will be in terms of the the acquisitions that he has made and and the the advances that he's made. But he is almost sort of like this kid that's able to collect all of his favorite pieces, the Marvel and Pixar and and Lucas and everything. And then you're right, I think letting you know, uh, Kevin Feige and letting these people do what they do so very well, which is why they're those, you know, you hear that a company is investing X amount of billions of dollars to buy Lucasfilm or to buy Marvel and the return on the investment is is exponential. And I think it is due in large part to not just the, the companies that he bought, but the way that he has allowed them to do what they do well. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and those are all great additions to a family and entertainment enterprise, you know, and, 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 you know, conversely, he's not, he, he, he's not afraid to make tough decisions, you know, when he has to make those decisions, he does it, you know, and uh, you got to respect him for it. Uh, And, you know, the, those changes get made and, and, and the company keeps moving forward. You know, so I don't know. I and, and by the way, having had the opportunity to meet him uh, and talk with him, I interviewed him for the special edition of the the Oswald book. He's just an incredibly nice guy. I mean, just a really nice guy. You know, and I have to say, the last time I saw him, uh, I went up into his office to to do this uh, interview with him for the Oswald special edition. And uh, he has a Ken Weber director's desk <laughs> as a desk. And, and, and it was like when we were done, he was like, oh, come over and take a look. And he was showing me that. And then on the wall behind the desk, he had an original matte painting from Mary Poppins hanging on the wall. I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's amazing. And it's it's wonderful to, to see somebody who's excited about uh, uh, the company uh, past and present, yeah. you know? 
And I think it's important. Like I said, you know, uh, whether it's an Iger or a Feige, you can tell that the, the company does well because it comes from a, a place of, of true passion. Um, but yeah. you you quickly mentioned, and we'll, I, will, I want to go back and touch more about some of the other film work that you did, but you mentioned Kem Weber. And it's a name that may not be familiar to a lot of people um, from, you know, his architectural standpoint, but really in terms of um, his impact on... Um, Disney and at the Disney Studios and obviously you've written a book about his mid-century furniture design specifically for the Disney Studios. Yeah, I, I mean, look, after the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you know, Walt had the financial wherewithal to build the studio that he wanted to build this campus, this utopian campus that had everything on it for the artists, for the the people working on his films, that uh, everything they needed. They didn't have to leave the lot. There was a commissary. There was, you know, the dry cleaning got picked up. You know, there was a barber shop. There was this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, and, 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 and in a sense, you know, I, I think you could look at it from a lot of different facets. But what he did do was he designed the studio campus around the animation process so that, you know, they could continue to make these high quality films. And uh, he brought in Kem Weber, who was an architect and designer uh, of the day. In fact, Kem, during the Depression, headed up the architectural and industrial design department at the uh, art center uh, school in Pasadena. And so, you know, you have this, uh, this really nationally known architect right there in your backyard and Walt engaged them uh, to essentially uh, help design the Disney studio. And part of that uh, the, there was a philosophy uh, within architecture uh, with Kem Weber and, and, and other architects of the day. Uh, it was called holistic design. So it was not just designing the building, but it was designing the interior and designing the furnishings that went into it. So that it was all integrated. There was a design thread that went through everything. And, uh, and that's uh, what he did. Uh, and it included uh, building specific uh, desks uh, for the animation process. So there was an animator's desk, there was an assistant's desk, there was a background desk, a layout desk, and those desks were all designed uh, with input from the respective artists that were going to be working on it. Uh, so each piece of furniture uh, was, you know, a functional piece of furniture, well-designed. I mean, this is form and function, you know. It was beautiful forms, uh, but functional for those particular disciplines. And by the way, Lou, I will tell you that as we're talking, I am sitting at a 1939 <laughs> Kem Weber animation desk uh, that the studio gave me when I left the company. Yeah, and I, this was a desk that I had been dragging around with me for decades, even though I had moved up into managerial positions, I still kept the desk <laughs> in my office. And uh, right now, my drawing board is laying flat and I have my computer sitting on top of the drawing board. So, uh, you know, these are gorgeous pieces of furniture. And it was funny, I was working on 
uh, a manuscript for the making of The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is going to come out in June of 2020. And as I was writing away, I kind of sat back to stretch a little bit and put my hands behind my head. And I just sat here and I started looking at my desk and I wondered, it just popped into my head. I wondered, has anybody written anything about this furniture? Because I'll tell you, this furniture has a soul to it. It, it, it really does. You know, there, there's something about this furniture and all of these great artists that had worked on this furniture over 70 years or so, you know, and and all the pictures that were done on these desks. And uh, and so I started doing some research and I wound up blowing the entire afternoon because I just got on this track of I got to find this, I got to find out information about this. Well, it turned out there really it was nothing written about it. There was a, a paragraph or two mentioned in in uh, in an architectural book, and that was about it. And so, in the course of doing all the research, I tracked down uh, Ken Weber's archives, and he had left everything to the University of California at Santa Barbara, and that was a, an hour and a half drive from my home. And so, I I contacted them and. Uh, uh, and they were terrific. They were just lovely people. They they set up an appointment for me. They had pulled all of the Disney material out of their archive. And I got up there and I sat in a room and I was going through all of this material and uh, doing all this research. And there were tons of photos and, and drawings and all kinds of letters and stuff like that. And, uh, and I wound up uh, writing this book. Uh, and it really, I tell people it was a love letter to the furniture. Uh, and as I, as I was writing it, I was, I was reaching out to friends. I, I, I went over and I interviewed Don Hahn about the furniture and I interviewed James Coleman and, uh, Brenda Chapman and, uh, um, uh, Karen Keller from layout and, you know, all of these different people, Ken Duncan. And, uh, I was just, <laughs> Kind of reaching out to folks, Andreas Deja. You're probably going, do you want to talk to me about what? You want me to talk about the front right? <laughs> you know, no, but, you know, all of them, when I reached out to them, were, were incredibly gracious. And they were like, absolutely, I'd love yeah. to talk about that. But a topic you know? that was probably never, you know, that nobody ever sort of discussed with them before. No, and, you know, like Andreas, you know, he's got Milt Call's old animation oh. desk. You know, and uh, and so I went over to Andre. I always call him Andy, but I went over to Andreas's house, and, and, and you know, I went to Don's studio, and I went here and there, and I just kind of roamed around Southern California, just interviewing various people. Yorn Klubin, who's a you know story guy, uh, he's got Ben Sharpstein's story desk. You know, so there's all this you know stuff out there, and and uh, and it was wonderful to get people's feedback and quotes on how they felt about that furniture, you know, and, and it really does have sort of a life of its own. It's a, there is a soul to this furniture and everybody talks about that. You know, there's a sense when, when we, when, you know, we were coming in a younger gen, the next generation, if you will, was coming into the studio. It was like when you sat down at one of these desks, you, you were in awe of, my gosh, you know, who sat here before me, you know, this, somebody worked on Peter Pan on this desk, yeah. somebody worked on Jungle Book or Dalmatians or Sleeping Beauty. It was like, wow, you know, 
And, uh, you know, at my desk, I worked on, holy mackerel, I worked on films like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King and Hunch. I worked on all these pictures on this desk and I still have it, you know. I can certainly relate as I sit down in front of my uh, 2017 Ikea handmade uh, crooked version, whatever it's called. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know. But, but Ken Weber, you know, he was this guy that kind of faded away. And yeah. and then the mid-century uh, furniture kind of fell out of favor during the 60s and 70s. And now there's this whole resurgence mm-hmm. uh, of that time period. And now, you know, these, these Weber furniture pieces from Disney that filtered out into the world are showing up in furniture auctions yeah. and going for astounding amounts mm-hmm. of money. It's crazy. Yeah, What's old is new again, as they say. Exactly. But it's beautiful that you're able to tie in the person and the story behind these pieces of because because sometimes they are. You talk about the the in, how intentional it was in terms of design and form and function that there was a person and there's a story behind their creation as well as the people that worked on them. So I love the fact that, again, it's a name I probably wouldn't have known had it not but- been. And also it's, you know, it's a topic, it's it's this little niche sliver of information that, you know, most people don't take notice of, mm. you know, uh, they don't notice uh, these types of things. And I took note of it and I, and I just felt like I wanted to do something to document it. Um, and, and I got the loveliest note from uh, somebody in studio operations uh, who said that they love the book. And they ordered extra copies to have on hand. But he said uh, they were able to identify a couple pieces of furniture in the warehouse that they had no idea what they were uh, because of the book. And I just felt like it was worth it. And it also kind of elevated the furniture into uh, into people's view, Mm -hmm. you know, that they should take a second look at this furniture. A lot of this stuff is now stacked in a warehouse collecting dust. And, you know, somebody might sit there and go, why are we keeping all this stuff? Let's get rid of it, you know? And, uh, and maybe they'll take a, you know, they'll pause and, you know, realize the value in it uh, historically and intrinsically now. Uh, And I hope that they at least keep an example of each of the 22 pieces you know definitely and so you mentioned you 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 very quickly touched on just a few of the little films you worked on like mermaid beating the beast hunchback aladdin lion king who framed roger rabbit and i i guess for all those you were doing effects animation um tell us a little bit about first of all where you get involved in the process from the from the you know the storyboarding to the, the film being released and then maybe uh, some of the places where you could point to a film and say, this is the thing that I worked on here. You know, I, I think that when, when you talk about special effects animation, I, I generally tell people special effects is anything that's animating other than the character or the background. Uh, so it's a lot of atmospheric and natural effects, you know, water and mud and explosions and the lightning and, you know, all of that rain, any, any of that kind of stuff. And it's not just drawing, it's also optical uh, effects. Uh, so using the animation camera to create some of that material. And 
exposing live action elements. So all of those things uh, come into play when you're doing special effects animation. And so, you know, when you look at a film like uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast, um, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of work on the transformation of the prince into uh, back from the beast into the prince. Uh, some of the furniture changing out. Uh, we did a lot of work uh, in Aladdin with magic, a lot of the genie's magic. Um, and, you know, the fun thing about that, if you if you were to stop frame through the genie magic, um, you know, we were pulling design elements from the Arabic alphabet. Hmm. Uh, so, so as to in keeping with the overall design of the picture, which had a, you know, drew off of Persian, uh, art, uh, Middle Eastern art, uh, to, to craft that film from a design standpoint. Uh, if you look at Lion King, you know, the whole fire and the pride lands at the end, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of that's being done by hand. You know, uh, it's all, all of that's being created. And so generally the special effects are a supporting character to a, a, a picture, you know, supports the character animation, supports the overall look of the picture. Uh, but in every one of those pictures, there was a sequence that, that kind of the special effects become the star, if you will. Um, and so, um, you know, every picture had challenges, every picture uh, uh, has its own set of memories, uh, of things that you learned and, uh, that you carried forward. And, uh, and I, I enjoyed working on all of them. And on top of that, the development of computer generated animation, because, uh, I was involved with a lot of that along with many of my colleagues in, you know, integrating, uh, uh, uh computer generated elements, uh, so, for instance, g- generally the effects departments is, is uh, after animation and cleanup uh, because then we're adding the special effects and then it's moving along. Um, uh, oftentimes we're working with the animators closely. Uh, I remember on Pocahontas, we worked closely with Glenn Keane on, uh, you know, we would get his rough animation. He'd have a rough indication of the canoe and we were going in and actually matching a computer generated canoe to his animation uh, to, so that she felt like she was sitting in a canoe and paddling through, you know, uh, around the river bend or whatever. Uh, so, uh, so generally, you know, it's a collaborative department. And that's working with, you know, background layout, uh, character animation. So I want to bring you to 2002. And I, I have to sort of take you out of the Disney universe for a second to what I think is at the time was the only non-Disney film you worked on. If you look at the chair I'm sitting on and the, uh, the room behind me, you know, I'm going to talk about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know. I'm just, I've always been excited about uh, everything I do and I'm, I'm always happy to help people out. So throughout the the nineties and into the two thousands, you know, most artists, most animators always did some amount of, a lot of them did freelance work, you know, um, during the nineties, I did a lot of commercials. So, you know, if you, if you saw a Tony, the tiger or a frost, uh, you know, frosted flakes or rice krispies or fruit loops commercial, 
in the nineties, more often than not, I had worked on it, you know, in some capacity doing freelance and uh, you know, it, it's just part of the business people, you know, keeping their finger out outside the studio. And uh, a friend of mine was a uh, second unit director on, on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man uh, movies. And I got a call one day asking me if I could help them out with something. And, and I, I said, sure. You know, I mean, it was my friend Jeff. And uh, I said, absolutely. You know, what do you guys need? And uh, so I wound up uh, putting a, a, a team, a little small group together, myself and a, a friend of mine, Mike. Uh, and uh, we wound up doing a couple of shots for that first Spider-Man movie mm -hmm. after Peter Parker gets bitten by the spider and goes home. He's in his bedroom. He falls on the floor and the camera goes right into his head and you're sort of in the synapses <laughs> of his brain. And we, we just did like two, three shots, I think. Uh, but it was done in the second bedroom of a friend's <laughs> condo in Hollywood uh, because at the time, uh, uh, he just couldn't add any more shots with Imageworks, uh, who was doing all the effects, because they were they were at a place where they were really pumping to try and get what they had on their plate done. And so we did these three shots for them, and uh, uh, we finished it like six weeks before the movie uh, opened. Wow. Yeah. It was crazy. So, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I mean, uh, you know, we, we, I would go down to, to the editorial suite that Sam was working out of with his editor and, and because Maker's Mark was one of the, like a sponsor, you know, they, they had a case, they had a couple of cases of Maker's Mark. So we all had to do a shot of Maker's Mark whiskey before we'd start our session. <laughs> it was a lot of fun though, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I want to go, I want to sort of take you back a, a couple years earlier. Um, you, you were mentioning working with Roy Disney um, yeah. and, and one of the projects that, that he really wanted to work on which I guess you, I believe you were executive producer on, which was um, Fantasia 2000. Well, I, w I was an executive. He was executive. He was, right, I'm sorry. He, right. Yeah. He was executive producer on, and I was the artistic coordinator and visual effects supervisor on Fantasia 2000. And, and that to me is a really special picture to me because I think what, what, what Roy did was he, he, had, he had made a deal. If you remember back in the 90s, they were putting all the classic animated films out on VHS. And uh, he basically made a deal with Michael Eisner that, uh, you know, I think the last two to ever come out on VHS was Snow White and Fantasia. And, and Roy wanted uh, some of the profits off of VHS on Fantasia to be used to fund a new Fantasia movie. And, uh, and Fantasia really was a very different picture. Uh, I view it as non-commercial. Uh, it's almost animation for animation's sake. It's, you know, it's beautiful art. Right. Um, and, and Walt's vision was it was an ever-evolving picture. And I think we all know that uh, when, when the film was first released, 
It didn't do well financially, partly because of the fact that he wanted to have a special sound system, Fanta Sound, installed in theaters. And, the you know, the movie ran at a theater in New York City or Chicago for three or four months, you know, and didn't get the wide release because of the sound system. But also, he, he was starting to lose his European market because of World War II. And so, you know, uh, by the time the U.S. entered the war, they lost a third of their revenue because of Europe, because of the war raging in Europe. So it wasn't a big financial success, but the idea was that the film would go out to theaters every so many years and there'd be new sequences and some of the old sequences. And it was this ever evolving picture. And, uh, and so that kind of went to the wayside because of world war two. And what Roy wanted to do was he wanted to carry that dream forward. Uh, and that's the genesis of Fantasia 2000. Now, when we first started working on that picture, they were going to keep in Dance of the Hours and The Night on Bald Mountain and uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. And by the time we got completed on the project, they were just going to keep in uh, the uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice uh, sequence. And um, Was it meant to sort of bridge the first and second film or... It was uh, it, it was just really the idea of carrying that concept forward, this evolving movie, you know, this evolving franchise, if you will. Uh, in fact, I will tell you that uh, 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 a year or so before uh, uh, Roy passed away, um, we were uh, talking about a Fantasia 3, mm-hmm. and it was going to be sort of a Fantasia world. It was going to be pieces like uh and we were working on some of them the little match girl was one from russia it was a russian thing uh there was uh lorenzo mike gabriel's uh lorenzo uh which was argentinian tango um there i had developed a a, uh aboriginal piece Mm. Uh, uh, that was, you know, sort of uh, based on an Aboriginal folktale. So there was was also One by One, which I um, co-directed, which was South African with Level M. And, uh, you know, there was going to be a piece from Japan, you know, that was Japanese and an Indian piece and, you know, it was uh, it was a great idea, but you know, again, it's it's not a film that you do that's going to go out and make a billion dollars. Right, right. And because of that, you know, there's there there's those people that that, that don't want to take those things seriously. But I think there's there's something really there's something good about those kinds of pictures uh, for an organization like Disney. But that's just my view. Well, and and I agree, and I think that they're they're beautiful and they're they're elegant in in their simplicity. And one of the pieces that was intended to be part of that third Fantasia movie actually is is timely again because with the opening of the new tower at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort, Destino is coming back into the forefront yeah. or getting attention from people who didn't know about it um, really at all. Could talk about a little bit of, uh, of your work in terms of 
finishing it and bringing back um, the the what is it seven and a half minute or so short? Yeah, you know, Destino was an interesting project because it actually the seed uh, the seed for that project was planted. Uh, with Roy uh, before we finished Fantasia 2000 because there's an interstitial in Fantasia 2000 hosted by uh, uh, Bette Midler. And uh, she talks about the Disney that never was. And uh, the Disney that never was is really sort of all those projects over the years that get developed and put on the shelf that either sometimes get picked up again and finished or, uh, or never get finished. But a great example is, you know, the, uh, Walt was trying to develop the little mermaid back in the 1940s mm-hmm. and, uh, the great Danish artist Kai Nielsen, who had worked at the studio for, for three or four years during that period, did some visual development work on, uh, the little mermaid and they just couldn't crack the story at that point. And they put it on the shelf. And then you fast forward to, uh, you know, the mid 1980, 85, 86, and uh, two young guys, Ron Clemens and John Musker, uh, you know, pick up that project and then discover that, uh, you know, it, it was uh, thought about being developed back in the 40s. And they pulled out some of that old artwork and stuff. And and that became the little I mean, it, it was, you know, they developed the Little Mermaid and it was released. And it's the film we all uh, love and and know very well. Uh, so, you know, the interstitial Roy wanted to include some of the Destino art that Dolly had done in 1946 at the studio. And so all of that artwork, by the way, had been living in the Imagineering archives mm-hmm. because John Hench, who was the artist Walt assigned to work with Salvador Dolly, uh, was now an executive over at Imagineering. And so I, for whatever reason, that artwork sort of followed him over there and was in that archive. So when Roy wanted to uh, include some of those pieces, that was sort of the moment when it was like, let's bring all of the artwork over to the studio, do high resolution scans of it, and then house it in the animation research library. And that's really how that came about. And so we included a couple pieces in that interstitial for Fantasia 2000. And then it sort of, you know, put a bug in Roy to finish that piece because Roy uh, liked to see things that documented the company's history. And this was an important moment during uh, the company history because after the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, there was a lot of great artists uh, in all different fields, you know, music and, and sculpture and murals and, uh, you know, fine art and whatnot that were gravitating to the studio. Um, and some worked at the studio, some came in and did special lectures at the studio. And, um, and, and so Walt had met Salvador Dali in the summer of 1945 at a party that Jack Warner had thrown. And Jack Warner of Warner Brothers fame, uh, they were doing the Alfred Hitchcock uh, film Spellbound. And uh, so you had uh, 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 these two artists, these two great 20th century artists meeting, and, and they struck up a friendship. 
I mean, it was a legitimate friendship. They actually liked each other and, and they wanted to see if they could collaborate. And, and by January of 1946, Dolly was working uh, in the animation building at the studio lot. Uh, and uh, he was developing uh, this project called Destino, which, which he, he is, was based on a piece of music, My Destiny of Love, um, and uh, it was a piece of music that Walt had purchased uh, when he went on the South American trip um, uh, years earlier. And so he had all this music and Dolly was gravitated to it because of, you know, destiny. He had this fascination with destiny. And, and so that was the basis of it. And by the way, uh, when we completed that short, yeah, we were looking at that as potential sequence for this Fantasia three, this Fantasia world, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that was going to sort of break the mold a little bit because you had lyrics to a song mm -hmm. uh, on that. And so, uh, but anyway, long story short, after Fantasia 2000 released, Roy wanted to uh, finish uh, off Destino. And so we got to work on that. And that was completed in 2003. And, you know, it won a number of uh, awards. It got nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, again, when you look at a film like Destino, that's a piece of fine art. Mm -hmm. that's, that's Salvador Dali paintings moving. You know, and and I think one of the reasons why it didn't get finished when they were first starting to work on it was the fact that it really eclipsed the Disney house style. When you look at it, it's very Dalinian. Mm -hmm. uh, and and even Roy at the time commented, like, could you imagine uh, them releasing this in the 1940s? People would have been like, what in the hell is this? You know? <laughs> it didn't feel like a Disney piece. It felt like a Dolly piece. Yeah, it did. Absolutely. But, you know, it was it was again, it was a moment in in history at the company. And and the finished product uh, is this wonderful little uh, art film is how I look at it. And I'm really grateful that the company has kept it elevated as an art piece. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and they're not, you know, dumping merchandise all over the place or anything like that. The film gets airplay, uh, you know, at museums around the world periodically when they do Dolly exhibitions and stuff like that. And I think it's wonderful. It really is. And the fact that it's an inspiration to this new um, hotel. Yeah, I would be fascinated to, to walk with you through the Grand Destino Tower to sort of hear your thoughts because it's not the, the way it's done is is so subtle yet brilliant because you'll see the outline of the dahlia in the metalwork and in frames or in 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 light fixtures and it's so subtle but if you're familiar with the film which plays in the lobby right near the, the check-in desk you really get a sense of, uh, especially upstairs um, on the 16th floor in Toledo and in the Dahlia Lounge where there's pictures of Walt and Dolly and you see yeah. so much of uh, Dahlia and Kronos in in every, every talking about the furniture and even the furniture in the room. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I think, Lou, you and I should do some sort of an experience. We'll do a guided tour with a group of people. Oh, we love that. And we'll have to eat, obviously, of course. We'll eat while we're there, too. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I think yeah, I have not I have not had the chance to go through it. I haven't been down there in a bit. Uh, but from uh, all accounts, it sounds beautifully done. Uh, elegantly done, uh, and uh, and I I hope uh, I hope they have my book in their gift shop. It is it's a it's a beautiful resort. Um, when I went, I was incredibly impressed because it feels and understand my meaning by this. It feels when you walk in like an elegant upscale five star Las Vegas resort with the clean lines and simplicity. With just a little bit of Disney sprinkled on top, it very much yeah. embodies the s. It's it is it is a Destino film themed resort, but so subtly done. Um, it, it's it's beautiful in its elegance. Yeah, well, you know, and that's so it's it's wonderful to hear that because again, it's maintaining the integrity of that little film. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 look, you you've obviously worked on there's a you know, you've worked on the rest of speaking about what old being new again, you've worked on just very quickly the, the restoration team and worked on restoring yeah. films like Bambi, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. What does that team do? And when I hear restoration, are you restoring the film to the original artistic intention or restoring it to try and you know, quote unquote, clean it up or modernize it for newer audiences? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I this is always one of those things that uh, becomes uh, uh, debatable depending on who you're talking to. But for me, uh, when I was on the artistic, uh, when I was on the restoration team, I was sort of the uh, artistic supervisor for that. And uh, and we would go in and we would look at uh, first and foremost, uh, you have to know that the original negatives for all those films were scanned at 4K, digital 4K scans, so very high-resolution scans. And then we would view the film uh, in, in a, a screening room, and we'd literally almost go through it frame by frame. And there are anomalies within animation. So when a lot of those early films were made, they were using the best technology they had, but I can tell you as an artist, and I know that a lot of the old timers like Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson and those guys that we were able to bring in to, to see some of the work we were doing before they passed, um, uh, the idea that when you're photographing an acetate cell on a background, it's not your art artistic intention to photograph dust, dirt, mm -hmm. cell scratches, Newton rings, uh, ripples in a cell, all of those anomalies that sometimes will be photographed in. So it was our intention when we did these digital restorations to go in and restore them to what the original artistic intention was. And that in, in and of itself means you are removing dust and dirt and Newton rings and, um, you know, scratches and things like that. And you're also fixing mistakes. And 
you know, again, this is where, you know, some people might be up in arms. Well, you know, those raccoons that disappear out of the, the baby raccoons that pop out of the mother's mouth at the end, you know, the end of the, the forest fire in Bambi, that's part of the film. Well, guess what? That wasn't the intention of the artist. You know, the intention was the raccoon, the raccoon mother was coming out with her babies hanging out of her mouth consistently to the end of the scene, not halfway to the end of the scene and they pop off. Uh, that was a camera mistake, you know? And we didn't take these things lightly. We we had discussions about it. And by the way, on that, that Bambi shot, uh, we, uh, we actually not only had a heavy discussion about it because there were some people felt they should be left the way it was. I actually talked to Roy about it. And Roy says it was a mistake. It should get fixed. (laughs) (laughs) But, but the, but the intention was to, to restore these films back to their original luster. Uh, And, you know, when we screened uh, Lady in the Tramp, uh, Ollie Johnson uh, practically had tears in his eyes at the end. And because we asked him what he thought, he said, this is the way it should have looked, you know, from the time that they, you know, when they first released the picture. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think that we took great care uh, in doing it. And we also referenced uh, original artwork uh, for color. But you also have to realize it's not just looking at a background in regular lighting. It's actually taking that background and putting it out on uh, the successive exposure film. And then looking at the film coming back and color correcting that to actually match the colors. So there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes. So somebody may look at Peter Pan and go, well, you know, Captain Hook's coat isn't the right red. Well, yeah, actually, it is the right red. What you were seeing was like, you know, uh, 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 you know, a 14th generation print at the cement cinema in Oregon. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like what you remember from from being, you know, from your childhood and what it actually was supposed to look right. like two different things. Your Betamax you know? copy might not be exactly what the artistic intent was. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. But yeah, it, it, it was it was really an honor to to work with a talented group of people uh, on doing those restorations. I have to say, and preserving those. And what was nice, the company uh, the company again uh, took great care in uh, in preserving their library. So uh, a lot of those early negatives are gonna you know they're they're nitrate negatives, so they are gonna deteriorate. Uh, and so by doing the 4K scans, they have a record, not only a digital record, they actually created a safety negative of the original negative. So they have a duplicate of the negative. They have a digital copy of it. And then they have the uh, digitally restored version of the film also on film, right. you know, so I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's, they, they've covered themselves. Right. You know? And somebody has a backup of it somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's a good thing. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was great to be a part of that and, and to make sure uh, all of those films and, and all the classic films have had their negative scan, uh, even, even the, the, you know, into the sixties uh, uh, and seventies when you're on safety stock mm-hmm. and they weren't using nitrate anymore. Uh, you know, uh, they, they, they have all of those negatives and they're, they're all well-preserved. 
And Dave, listen, I could talk to you all day long um, <laughs> because you're we literally have just touched on so much of what you've worked on. You've done documentaries like The Tunes Behind the Tunes, uh, Walt Disney on the front lines. You've worked on, in the theme parks on things like World of Color, talk about bringing uh, animation to life. And we could probably do an entire show just about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and some of those missing shorts and your your Oswald book. But just to sort of bring things around full circle, as somebody who has been with the company and literally has such an intimate knowledge of uh, the films and, and the direction that was going, I mean, you were part of that. You probably didn't realize at the time that you were part of that, that renaissance of Disney animation Give me your, your thoughts on, you know, the current state and you know the, the future of Disney animation and or even some of the live action remakes of some of those classic animated films that you, you know, like Lion King, where you literally had a hand in. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, animation, especially at Disney, animation goes in, in cycles, just like everything in the world goes in cycles. You know, um, animation is, is cyclical and it's usually, a, a, you know, 10 to 15 to 12 to 15 year cycles where, you know, you build into a peak, you have all these hit films and you kind of come down off of that and you putter along in a valley a little bit with, you know, sort of less than our memorable pictures and you kind of come back out of it. it. It's really, you can go through the Disney animation timeline and you can kind of plot that sort of uh, cycle, if you will. Um, and, and I think that uh, uh, you get uh, different creative uh, and managerial uh, upheavals. Uh, uh, at, pe at the peaks and valleys of those cycles. Uh, and so, you know, to me, uh, I think that uh, I'd love to see Disney animation get back into doing more original uh, stories uh, and less sequels, but I understand the dynamics of why they have to do some of these sequels, you know, and they have Frozen 2 coming out later this year. Um but generally speaking, uh, I think that uh, Disney animation has weathered uh, a lot of ups and downs uh, over the decades and, uh, and, and certainly having worked there during an upswing. And you, you don't know when you're doing it. Uh, you know, we knew when we did Beauty and the Beast, when the stories were coming back, that the theater owners were running the show, were running the picture at night and filling theaters. And it was a date picture. And then the same with Aladdin. We knew that there was a sea change happening with, the, you know, audiences. Uh, it wasn't just children, you know, at the matinees. It was now, you know, uh, evening shows and adults were going to see the pictures and stuff like that. And so that was, that was hugely gratifying. The fact, you know, I've, I've been asked quite a bit lately, actually, I was asked at Comic-Con about, you know, the live action. In fact, I did a panel last Thursday at Comic-Con in San Diego, and that evening, the new Lion King film was opening uh, nationwide, 
and uh, you know, and I'll tell you exactly what I told the audience. And so, somebody uh, later tweeted it. I, I was being PC, but you know what? I don't work for the company anymore. I can tell you anything I want to tell you. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a student of of Disney, if you if you understand the history and the legacy of the company, Walt Disney. You know, people say he never liked to repeat himself, but he often reused and recycled stuff he had done masterfully. I mean, he was a master of it. He would chop and dice and slice stuff up and put it onto the wonderful world of Disney TV show. Um, he was, but I, I also pointed to the fact that when he was building Disneyland, he, he reached into the past to some of his past films and he created an, uh, an immersive attraction with Alice in Wonderland, with uh, Mr. Toad from uh, Wind in the Willows, uh, with the Peter Pan ride, you know? So when you go into the parks worldwide now, because many of the those iconic attractions are all over the world at the different park locations now, um, you know, they're taking these great stories and great properties that audiences really love and they're creating new experiences for them. And with Lion King, you know, we did the Lion King animated film and it was at the time the highest grossing animated film of all time. It was huge, right? And it was only a few years after that picture released that, that they created the Broadway stage production, the, the Julie Taymor version, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, from, from my standpoint, uh, they created this beautiful stage production of that story. So now you have that experience. You have the animated film. You have that experience. On the 10th anniversary of Lion King, they did something special. They added in news from the underground sequence, which had originally been cut from the original film. All the filmmakers were involved with that. And we, you know, I worked on that. We put that into the picture, right? So now you have a different version of the animated film and you have the Broadway stage show. So, you know, then there's at the parks, there's stage productions that are 10 or 15 minutes long uh, celebrating those films, you know, and now they come out with this. I, I hate to say live action because it's really <laughs> animated movie, but it's a hybrid film. You know, it's, it's a photo real animated movie um, and it's spectacular. And the audiences are given choices to see stories that resonate with the audience in different ways. Mm. And to me, that's pretty fantastic because, you know, somebody, somebody said, hashtag, I don't care. Right. So I, oh, sit there and go, I, I sit there and go, that's cool. That is so cool that you don't care because you have a choice. You don't have to go see right. that movie. Right. But there's millions of other people who have chosen to go see it because you see what the box office results were from last weekend. It shattered all records. Right. So I have to say, I'm a person who loves choice. 
you know? And if I want to go see the original film, I, I can watch it anytime I want. I have a DVD copy of it, you know? If I want to see the 10th anniversary with the uh, news from the underground, I can watch that one, you know? If I'm in New York and I want to go see the Broadway show, well, heck, I, you know, I can send a note off to the folks at Disney Theatrical and and, and I can, you know, buy a ticket through them, uh, get a nice seat and watch that production. So for me, I like being able to see those and having worked on the original film, I think it's great that they're doing them, yeah. you know? My only thing is I hope that as they do them, they they do try to stay true to the core heart of those stories. You know, I, I get you're going to make some changes and, and you know, the, it's a visually different medium. Uh, if you're going to do a live action version or stage production, and there's there's artistic choices and all of that. And I think it's fantastic. But as long as you maintain the heart of those stories, you know, I think that it's wonderful. Yeah. And what I hear a lot too is, you know, um, it's not a movie that they had to make. And then many people will append it by saying, well, but I'm glad they did because I enjoyed it for what it is, you know, in and of, of itself. Like you said, if you're a Lion King fan, if you're an Aladdin fan, um, whatever. But you know something like I was, I was thrilled when, when they first announced it, I heard some moaning and groaning from people, you know, colleagues and whatnot, but I was thrilled when they, when they said they were doing it and John Favreau was attached Mm -hmm. to it. He's a great filmmaker. He's a good actor too, but I mean, he's a great filmmaker. And I absolutely loved his version of Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. I thought they did a beautiful job. It was astounding to see that movie. It was absolutely fantastic. And so to me, it doesn't diminish the fact that the original animated Jungle Book is out there, you know, and the, the great Milt Call animation and, you know, all the, the greats that worked on that picture. That That's just, that's its own thing and it's a beautiful picture and that's always going to be there. Now you got this John Favreau version. And I think that was a fabulously done picture. So I was thrilled when he was attached to Lion King. And I think he's delivered based on what everybody's saying, because everybody's sitting there going, it looks fantastic. And it does look fantastic. I mean, it's, it's different, uh, you know, and, and everybody's going to have their favorite. Some people are going to say, yeah, well, it was okay, but I love the original. Okay, great. Some people are going to go, look, I, I like the original, but boy, the stage production is, it just blows it out, you know? And that story, that whole, you know, film, the, the, the whole premise of it resonates so deeply with people worldwide. In fact, uh, Tom Schumacher, who heads up Disney Theatrical, once told me that at any given hour of the day, there is a Lion King performance going on somewhere in the world. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's <laughs> absolutely crazy. You know, I mean, and it's been doing that for 25 years. Yeah. So I applaud them for making a new version of the film. And you know what? 10, 15 years from now, maybe they're going to do a holographic immersive experience <laughs> where we we as the audience will be sitting on the pride land while the film is going on around us on some holodeck, you know? <laughs> right, which is following what Walt wanted, right? With Disneyland, he wanted you to experience the films in a three-dimensional environment where you were an active participant. Um, but I think you're right. I think the reason why these films are able to stand on their own or the stage productions is because coming full circle, it's about 
great story and great storytelling. Um, and you are a fascinating storyteller. Last question: If there was, if you were given the keys to the kingdom and and no money or copy or nothing was was, is there a story that you would love to animate or bring to life on screen that maybe has or hasn't been told yet? Uh, you know something. I, I years ago there was a couple of directors, they're French brothers, Paul and Gaetan Brizzi, and they did the Firebird sequence in Fantasia 2000. And I absolutely adored working with them. I loved those guys. They were just true artists, you know, to the nth degree. And they, after they did the Firebird, they were developing uh, Don Quixote. Hmm. And I'd love to see that eventually be done in, in sort of an epic way, you know, um, I, I thought what they were doing was absolutely beautiful. Um, and I think it could be a, a great picture. That said, um, you know, something, if I had the keys to the kingdom, uh, it's not necessarily about a film I would make, but uh, it might be more about some of the smaller businesses uh, within Disney that uh, should be cared for. But, be, you know, as the company gets bigger, some of these small little areas become so small that they're not registering on the radar anymore. And they're, some of them die on the vine. They, they just go away. Uh, Disney Educational Productions is a great example of that. It's, it's kind of died on the vine, which was a shame because uh, that, was a, that was something that had such a wonderful catalog of material and material that is still relevant today, uh, a lot of it, that could be um, enhanced and repurposed and cleaned up, if you will, uh, and still put out there. Uh, and so, you know, that's an area I think, you know, the, there's, there's, you know, some of the fine art stuff uh, could be done better, uh, you know, but I think all in all, they're doing a pretty amazing job, right. you know, I mean, it is, it is a pretty amazing company, but, you know, as a company gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's, it's, they need to take care with some of those small areas that are part of the legacy. You know, either take them and group them together into their own little, you know, uh, their own little division, you know, and, and let a handful of people care for it uh, rather than let it die on the vine. So anyway, but that 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 said, hey, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to be wearing my Burger King crown uh, anytime soon. <laughs> All right, real, real last question, and you can either do this as, as as somebody who had a hand in something or just your personal favorite Disney film. Like if you're stranded on a desert island with one DVD and unlimited battery, like what would be that that one film for you? Uh, for me, it would be Pinocchio, hands down. You know, that's my, my personal favorite. Uh, I think Pinocchio is probably uh, uh, the masterpiece in the Disney canon. Uh, and, uh, it's just an incredible film. Uh, and, and I appreciate the way you asked that question because most people say, what's your favorite film? You know, (laughs) what's the favorite film you worked on? Well, I, I don't have a favorite film I worked on because, 
uh, it's like asking somebody who's your favorite child, you know, and deep down, you, you have get, one. You just don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, that's not, that's just not fair. Sure, you know, sure, it's sure. like every picture I worked on, I learned something new. I made new friends. I was very proud of whatever it was. I contributed to it. Um, you know, uh, that said, I mean, there's some films that bubble up, you know, because of the experience. You know, I mean, uh, of the films I worked on, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, really bubbles up to the surface because I actually worked on that picture in London. I got to work with a very international crew of animators, people that I now, you know, I know, I know people all over the world because of that picture. I got to work with the great Richard Williams, uh, who's probably the greatest living animator uh, today. Um, and, uh, and I got to work with Don Hahn on that picture and, uh, uh, Andreas and, and, uh, you know, just a whole great group of, uh, artists, uh, animators, uh, on that picture. But, but of all the animation out there, to me, Pinocchio is, is the pinnacle. And I love the fact that you, that you went back to, to some of the early animation, because I'm with you. I'm, I, I very much sit in, in a Peter Pan, you know, um, yeah. type of world, but, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, when I look at, you know, Pinocchio and then Fantasia and Bambi, you know, that, that cluster of films, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I mean, those are masterful, masterful productions, all of them, but you know, Pinocchio just jumps out. Uh, yeah. I, listen. I think they're doing a live action version. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You beat me by half a second. I'm like, soon there's got to be a Pinocchio uh, live action. But I think sometimes too, it, it does it does bring attention to some of those older films that kids might have said, well, that that's old. You know, my kids sometimes will go, that's that's really old looking. Well, now all of a sudden, if they love that story, they might want to go back and see the original animated production too. You know, the 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 one that I I think I hope they do something with um, is. Black Cauldron was based on the Chronicles of Friedane or something like that. And uh, I, I hope they do, uh, I, I hope they go back into those books. I mean, they could create their own Game of Thrones kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, movie or TV show uh, just based on that material. But uh, I, I still hold, you know, I still look at uh, uh, Black Cauldron. I mean, that has a special place for me because it was the first picture I ever worked on. Uh, but when you look at Black Cauldron, uh, certainly there is some great animation in there. There's beautiful backgrounds and art direction. Um, but story-wise, it just doesn't hold together, you know. And and I, I hope that someday you know somebody does something with the underlying property from from those from that picture. But who knows? Yeah, you never know. And there's always rumors swirling around about what the next uh, project might be. We're hearing Atlantis Lost Empire right now and a lot of other rumors. So you never know if Black Cauldron might be one of those that they bring back as well. Um, but Dave, I am uh, so good. Uh, no, I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure that somebody's trying to figure out how to do uh, live action Frozen. <laughs> right. you know? I mean, they already have the stage production right. for it. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I remember seeing it for the first time on the Disney Cruise Line, and it was just so odd to see it come to life, you know, in, in that kind of way. But um, the uh, yeah. the response from the audience was was phenomenal. So it, it sometimes but, it, the story is great. It doesn't matter where it's. 
to, to me, it's just, it, it, it's exciting because there's, there's so many new things coming along and, uh, um, you know, they just uh, announced the whole new slate of films with Marvel um, and, uh, and they're just firing on all cylinders. I mean, I, every time I go see a Marvel picture at the theater, it, it, I, I'm just thrilled, you know, because they, they just seem to be, you know, hitting it out of the park every time they release one of those pictures. It's, it's just fabulous. And, uh, you know, and, and there, there's a lot of original programming being done as well. So, you know, for, from my standpoint, there's plenty of new stuff coming out. And I think Disney Plus has got to be exciting, especially with so much from the vault and archives going to be a click away for people that might not have gotten an opportunity to see it otherwise. Hey, maybe they're going to do a remake of, uh, you know, some of those old pictures like the love bug or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or Darby O'Gill. <laughs> right. <laughs> So well, they, again, I, I, it's exciting, though. You know, it yeah. really is exciting. It's a great time to be a Disney fan. It certainly is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, again, thank you for not just your time, but for all that you have done. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to as many, if not all, of your books, the, the Roy Disney book, the Eric Goldberg book, the Destino book, the Finding Oswald book, which is fascinating, um, and it's there's so much to it. Um, and, I, and I hope one... I hope one day to be able to uh, to meet and thank you in person and, and maybe take that tour of the Grand Destino Tower. Um, yeah, you know, one, one of these days I'll get down there for it. Uh, yeah, I, I'd absolutely. And and do please put a link up to my website, davidbossert.com. Um, I've got all my books listed there as well, and there's links to all the various places selling them. Uh but, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's always fun talking about this stuff. And it's also been a blast writing a lot of these books and, and you know, things I have been involved with in the past or things that I'm interested in and being able to document some of this stuff. Um, I think these are, are, you know, just wonderful little documents of history. And, and I appreciate all the people that uh, feel the same way and, and buy the books and all of that. So... Thank you very much. Uh, thank for you, and me. very, very grateful for you. Thank you. It's time for our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week. Where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes in what you see, maybe even what you hear. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, we're gonna go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week we were discussing the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, which was the space flight that first landed man on the moon. That, of course, inspired me to stay in or with space, as it were. And so for last week's trivia question, I asked you to name all the sponsors that Space Mountain in Walt Disney World had since the opening day. Now, again, I want to thank the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct, and knew that Space Mountain has had a few different sponsors over the years. The original sponsor in 1975 until about 1993 was RCA, 
which Disney was able to convince the sponsor to sponsor the attraction by giving them that post-show home of future living area where they can see themselves on the remarkable and affordable RCA color TVs. Now, after RCA's sponsorship ended, FedEx took over sponsorship until about 1999, at which time, and now, there is no sponsor. So the answer I was looking for was RCA and FedEx. I took all of the correct entries, randomly selected one, and again, last week we were playing for all of my digital products, which is my 102 ways to save money for an at Walt Disney World book, as well as all seven of my virtual audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom. I take you land by land, including Toontown, rest in peace, and teach you about the history, secrets, details, and stories, all in sort of a virtual walking guided tour. I'm also going to send you a WW Radio vinyl sticker, a pop socket, and a WW Radio t-shirt. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Anna Bianchini. So, Anna, congratulations. I have your shipping address because you use the online form. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, as D23 Expo is coming up in just a few weeks, I think there's going to be some pretty monumental announcements and changes coming to Walt Disney World that we're going to find out during the Parks and Resorts presentation. By the way, don't forget to watch and follow along live all three days at WW Radio Live, or if you're going to be at Expo, come by the WW Radio and Mouse Fan Travel booth. We'll talk more about that coming soon, and I'm also going to share some of my predictions in terms of what might be coming and what might be announced at Expo probably on our August 14th Wednesday night Facebook Live show. However, it got me to thinking about some of the changes that we know are coming, as well as some changes that I think might be coming, and that may or may not have brought me over to Journey into Imagination, particularly our little purple dragon friend, Figment. Now, if you know Figment's story or have read or heard my interview with Tony Baxter, you know that the inspiration and name of Figment came from a very interesting place. And this week, I want you to tell me, where did Tony Baxter get the inspiration for the name Figment for the attraction? So where did Figment get his name? Where did Tony Baxter find his inspiration? You have until Sunday, August 4th at 11.59 p.m. to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, Use the online form there. Again, you're going to play for all the digital products, the books and audio tours, which you can find on Amazon and in iTunes, a WW Radio vinyl sticker, a pop socket, and a WW Radio shirt. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Don't forget that I want you to be part of the community and conversation. If you go to www.radio.com slash community, that will take you to our Box People group on Facebook. It is warm, welcoming, and friendly. Grab a snack, make yourself comfortable, introduce yourself, ask a question, or just be part of the discussions there. I also want to once again thank some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family. I sincerely appreciate all the love and the support and the friendship that you guys give me each and every month. I want to thank some of the new members that have joined the hundreds of you who are part of the Nation family, including Rick Bedoya, Clay Malcolm, Jeffrey Riccio, Jason Red, Chris Maxwell, Kristen Mackey, and Craig Hargrove. I again thank and appreciate all of you and look forward to sharing some of the special benefits that 
bring part of the nation family brings including monthly scavenger hunts we have a private facebook group custom magic band covers logo gear t-shirts backpacks care packages from walt disney world we also do exclusive live video group calls every month there's also early access to special events and lots more and don't forget that a portion of your completely optional contribution does go to our dream team project to benefit the make-a-wish foundation of america to find out more and join the nation family you can visit www.radio.com support if you have a question you want me to answer on the show you can email me lou at www.radio.com or call the voicemail be heard on the air at 407-900-9391 you can also connect with me on facebook Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I am at Lou Mangello. And don't forget to like the WW Radio page as well. And don't forget that when you join the WW Radio Box People group on Facebook to turn on notifications and see first, this way when I go live, not just on Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, but other times from the parks and resorts, you get notified and can be part of the conversation. And of course, as much as I love connecting with you online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. It's why I continue to do monthly meetups in Walt Disney World. Thanks to everybody who came out to Typhoon Lagoon this past weekend. Had a great day for our annual WW Radio Day at a Disney Water Park. Now, I'm not sure about an August meet of the month in Walt Disney World just because of timing and schedule and D23 Expo. So our meet of the month might actually take place out in California, either out at Expo or possibly right before Expo in Disneyland. Be sure to stay tuned to our events page as well as social. You can visit the WW Radio events page at www.radio.com slash events. There you can find out about not just Meets of the Month, but our Adventures by Disney, our group cruises, including we still have some availability for a cruise in February out of New Orleans and some other events that will be announced very soon, I promise, UK, I'm coming. Uh, also, you can find out about other meetups, not just in Walt Disney World, but on the road as I travel to speak. And if I can come to speak to your event, conference, or school about everything from ultimate customer service experience lessons from Disney, leadership lessons we can learn from Walt, social media, live video, podcasting, the power of community, Find out how I can come to present at your event in person or even virtually at lumangelo.com. And also, if you want to turn what you love into what you do, whether you're just starting out, if you're a content creator, blogger, want to learn how to grow your social presence, monetize what you do, my Momentum Weekend Workshop in Walt Disney World is September 28th and 29th. We have an optional Mastermind Monday. It is built on the pillars of inspiration education and community and more importantly it is a single room single track limited to just 50 people so you can learn and execute on what you learn right in the room as well as meet and work with others right away to help you take your idea your brand and business to the next level i just announced our keynote speaker is steve shussler who is the creator of the boathouse rainforest cafe t-rex cafe yak and yeti and is an exceptional dynamic speaker and entrepreneur I'm also going to announce our first round of speakers coming very soon, but you can still take advantage of a special discount just for you. My friend, if you use promo code WDWRADIO100, you can save $100 off your ticket. We are now more than 60% sold out. I have a feeling that is going to increase and we always sell out every year. So if you're interested in coming, that promo code is good until August 12th. So secure your seat before they do sell out. I want to once again thank my official and recommended travel provider who is MEI and Mouse Fan Travel, Becky Mankin and the entire team offer you the best possible service, all available discounts, all at no cost to you, whether you're going to World, Land, 
Adventures by Disney, Disney Cruise Line, or any destination on the, pr- the planet, you can find out more and get a free no-obligation quote at mousefantravel.com. And don't forget to order back issues and subscribe to Celebrations Magazine at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend. I promise you that whether we have met yet or not. And all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let your friends know about it. Invite them to be part of our community by tweeting out that you're listening and a link to this week's show on Twitter, Facebook, or wherever you sort of call home on social. And if you can, please just take a minute to rate and review the show over on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. I want to thank the more than 2,000 five-star reviews, including some recent reviewers like Steve Swirk, 0482, who says, WWE is the best. If you're seeking out the best Disney podcast, look no further. Lose personality and love for all things Disney, from the parks to the history, and of course, the food are infectious. It helps to bring that special Disney magic every week. I've recently started listening and couldn't be happier. He also hosts many others that add their own special touch to the amazing show. It's all here, waiting for you at WWE Radio. No Sam 116 says, and I'm reading this as if I'm watching Amazing Spider-Man 2. WWE Radio, so good. Love the energy and pace of the show. Sorry for that obscure reference. Uh, lose enthusiasm. And descriptive nature carries my imagination through Disney as if I'm experiencing the magic with him in person. Thanks, Lou. Keep up the great work. And Thatcher Rouse says, it's the best podcast. Lou is the best. Incredible production and insight. This helps give your daily dose of Disney. Thank you for what you do. Thank you, Thatcher Rouse, No Sam, and Steve Swirk0482. If you want to leave a review, you can just search for WW Radio on iTunes or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes for instructions and a direct link. And finally, and most importantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. I cannot express how much I love and appreciate you and the time and the attention and the friendship and the support you give me and this incredible community that you have built, right? I only built the clubhouse. You are the ones who populate it. And I am incredibly grateful for this special place and this amazing community and group of friends that you have created. You are special and you are loved and you are appreciated. And if there's ever anything that I can do to show my gratitude, to pay back the gift that you give me each and every week, then please just reach out and let me know. I hope that this truly is your best week ever. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou, this is Alex Byers calling from Hazelhurst, Georgia, and I just wanted to share about how I get my busy fix. Um, I love pin trading, so I am always collecting pins and always have pins up on my pin board and um, love looking online to see um, if there's pins around anywhere that I would like to grab, and I love collecting the Duffy pins. Um, when me and my husband went back in June, I collected nothing but Duffy, and I scored up really big on some. And also, we like to just, you know, look at pictures and just kind of reminisce on our past trips and also plan future trips. That's one of the big ways I can get my Disney fix. And also, um, shameless plug, I love watching um YouTube videos. I love watching the Tim Tracker. He's awesome and love listening to podcasts like you, Lou. Um, those are my big ways I get my Disney fix. And I also have a small little YouTube channel myself to try to help spread the Disney magic with everybody. It's not very big right now, but it's something I'm working on. Um, 
So it's called Alex and Disney. So if anybody wants to check it out, that would be awesome. And I just want to encourage anybody, like, if you're like me, that you want to start something like that, don't let anybody hinder you from doing it. You can do whatever you want. And even though it may not be big now, who knows what it will come into the future. So don't stop doing what you're doing. And I hope everybody is having a wonderful day. And um, I can't wait to hear how everybody else gets their Disney fixes. I'll see you next time. Bye. Hey, Lou. It's uh, Mikey calling from New York City. And I'm just listening to the episode right now. Uh, that's top 10 things uh, that you And um, listening to little Timmy Foster talk about how much we missed the days when you would um, not have the Internet. And uh, talking about hidden Mickey's. And I grew up in Southern California, so in Disneyland. And me and my friends used to print out a book. Uh, with all of the hidden Mickeys you could find, um, and we'd put it in a binder, and we'd take that with us every weekend to Disneyland, and we'd check off the ones we found, write down the ones we knew. So I'm with you, Timmy Foster. I miss those days, too. Uh, Lou, thanks for everything you do. Love the show, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, Lou. This is Chloe from Ridgeway, Virginia. I'm currently walking in the Magic Kingdom. Oh, man, it's uh, day, I don't know, three or four of our trip here for another few more days, and it has been awesome. Um, once again, I thought of you because I have got some food, got a snack, got an awesome-looking Dumbo cupcake from Storybook Treat, uh, heading up to meet with a fam to eat that. Just did the Keys to the Kingdom tour this morning. That was awesome. Um, but what was funny is, as the guide was pointing out all these different things, I kept thinking, wait, I already know that. Wait, I already know that. Oh, that's right, because I learned it from WDW Radio. So thanks so much for all the awesome information. Thanks for your show. Thanks for your positivity. And uh, thanks for helping to point out all those little things and always reminding us to look up and to keep moving forward. All right, I'm going to go eat my cupcake now. Bye. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flower Town, PA. It is hot as the surface of the sun here today. Like nobody wants to go outside, but it's pretty from the window. Anyway, I'm looking over this uh, Stage 4 Marvel movie list, and, you know, as much as I love Disney, my son is a huge Marvel enthusiast, and he is freaking out. Um, Anyway, my most – let's see, the movie I'm looking forward to the most. Let's see here. I'm looking at your list. I'm very interested to see Loki and Doctor Strange. Love those. Hawkeye, love him. Um, I think those are my top ones. Um, I haven't seen Captain Marvel yet. Can you believe it? Oh, i got to get on it. But anyway, I just wanted to call in. I'm super psyched um, for Marvel. I can't wait. I was a little bummed um, when Stage 3 ended because I just wasn't sure how could they make it anything is good. Like, was it ever going to be as good as what we just experienced? And I'm thinking, looking at this list, I'm psyched. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to miss Iron Man. Who knows? Maybe, some way, somehow, he'll get worked back into things. Or maybe he's not really dead. Who knows? Anyway, have a great weekend, you guys. It's Sunday afternoon, and I just put some Ikea furniture together, so I'm sure you all know what that's like. Um, Take care. See you in the box on Wednesday night. Make somebody smile.
Bye. Hello, Lou Mangello. It's Darlene Nagy from West Seneca, New York, calling in with the countdown. I know it's been a while. It's been a really crazy couple months for me, but everybody, I think, in the in the Fox family knows that we are going to be moving to Florida, and that countdown is down to two days that we will start our adventure down again. Um, and there's now 61 days until that awesome momentum. Look at the Facebook page because I think there's some a spot or two left. Looks like it's going to be a fantastic event. 63 days until our Epcot new fireworks show event, if you've bought tickets for that. 76 days until Boo and Becky take you guys on that adventure by Disney in Japan, and then 192 days until New Orleans. I would really like to drive up to New Orleans for that, like, pre-cruise event. I hope will happen. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Always positive. Have a great, magical day, everyone. Love and hugs.